We had a $97 billion surplus last year, and now we're going to have a $25 billion shortfall. They continue to spend, 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 spend. Politics is not driven by common sense. They don't have any interaction with the public, right? There's no accountability whatsoever. No accountability. And so these bills get written behind closed doors. So is it fair to say a few people are really running the show in the state? I think it's fair to say that there's about 10 people that are deciding what the budget is every year. My guest today is Scott Baugh, former California state representative and assembly Republican leader. It wouldn't surprise me that this budget deficit, depending on a recession, would get to 50 to $100 billion. California could be looking at a $25 billion plus budget deficit in the coming fiscal year. What caused the state to experience a potential deficit after having a huge surplus the past two years? Will services be cut or will we have to pay higher taxes? Stay tuned for an insider's perspective. I'm Siamai Karami. Welcome to California Insider. Scott, it's great to have you. Good Welcome. to be with you. Ah, always. We want to talk to you about the budget in California. Like wow. We had a $97 billion surplus last year, and now we have, we're going to have a $25 billion shortfall. What are your thoughts on this? Well, so you have to put everything in context. Uh, when I was the, in the legislature 22 years ago, it, was, it hadn't even reached $100 billion yet, and now we're at $300 billion on the budget. And in the last two years, because of the COVID stimulus largely, uh, we've had these budget surpluses. And what happens is you, you get a little exuberant and you start spending money, and some of them are one-time projects. And since it was one-time money, 100% should have been one-time projects, but it wasn't 100%. You know, they increased education spending, and, uh, and these are permanent increases. And so when your uh, budget revenue drops off a little bit, either because of the economy dropping off or because COVID relief is not there anymore, you end up with a big deficit. So that surplus that we had... The, the 97 billion mostly was because of the COVID funds and the stock market, or was it? Was it? Absolutely, yeah, it's, dri it's driven by COVID funds, the bailouts, the states were given billions of dollars. We put $9 trillion in the economy through all the COVID relief. And then of course you have prices continuing to go up and that creates inflation and, and, uh, and wages go up and you get more tax revenue and then all of a sudden the stimulus stops and, and all those revenues start to decline. So how do you think we didn't plan for this? Because it seems like a, such an obvious thing that this money won't be there the next year. It seems obvious for people with common sense, but uh, politics is not driven by common sense. And so what happens is people look at the money that's there and, and there's, no, uh, uh, there's no spending itch that the Democratic Party won't scratch. They're really the progressive party. The, um, uh, and so they continue to spend, 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 spend because there's just this demand for spending. And then, of course, the moderate voices get drowned out. Um, uh, moderate Democrats uh, get canceled a lot in Sacramento. In fact, they're afraid to speak up sometimes about what the truth is because the progressive left will cancel them. Now, what's going to be the impact of a shortfall like this when we hear $25 billion? And some people have estimated that it's going to be a lot more if there is a bigger recession. And we haven't really estimated the cost of inflation on, on our cost because our cost will go up. What is the impact? Well, so, so you're right to drill down on those two points. Uh, a recession will make that $25 billion a lot bigger. It could go 50 to $75 billion in a recession. 
plus the inflationary prices. The everything costs more, and so even delivering government services costs more, and so so you'll have an increased uh, uh, budget deficit because of that. So it wouldn't surprise me that this budget deficit, depending on a recession, would get to fifty to a hundred billion dollars. And then what will happen? Do we have to pay more taxes, or some of these services will get cut, or are these one-off? Uh, services that we got? Yeah, we, we saw that happen um, more than once in the last 20 years uh, where um, the revenue comes in. I remember during the dot-com years when I was in the state legislature, all this money was flowing in and we encouraged the governor to do like uh, construction projects. Those are one-time projects and so when the money went away um, that you wouldn't have a big deficit and they, they disregarded our council and continue to go spend and spend and spend. So yes, they'll have to eventually cut or raise taxes, uh, or they'll do budget gimmicks to pretend, you know, they're having more revenue than they do, and, and, and they'll play those games. It's a patchwork game. They play for two or three or four cycles until the economy rebounds, and, and they try to fix it with a, a growing economy. The economy is not doing well, and with the current government spending irresponsibly, the inflation could get worse. How will you protect your hard-earned savings? The answer is gold. Gold is the world's oldest, most proven form of currency. It's there for you when inflation soars and when other assets go sideways. And that's why Birch Gold is so thrilled to introduce a new product that reimagines gold as a currency, the gold back. This month, you'll get a free gold back for every $5,000 purchased. When you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a precious metal IRA with Birch Gold by December 22nd, Birch Gold will help you own gold and silver in a tax-sheltered account. Visit birchgold.com California to claim your free info kit on gold. Then talk to one of their precious metal specialists. Plus, with every purchase you make before December 22nd, you'll get a free gold back. This is a great gift just in time for Christmas. Once again, visit bearishgold.com slash California and protect your savings with gold today. And this process of looking at the budget, for we were talking to some legislatures that told us that they don't even see the budget, proposed budget, only a few hours before they have to vote on it. So they don't get enough information to know what's in there to analyze it. Right. And it's no different than what we're seeing right now in the, at the federal level where $1.7 trillion is being spent and they're not even going to be able to read it. But yeah, what happens is 20 years, 25 years ago, you used to have call, something called the Big Five. It would be the Speaker, the Republican leader in the House, and then it would be the Pro Tem and the Republican leader in the Senate. They would get together with the governor, so that's the Big Five, and they would negotiate all the uh, provisions. And you know, one caucus would have a focus on, on transportation, one on education, but they would negotiate these provisions down and they would come to a resolution. The Big Five doesn't even meet anymore. So um, what, when I was there, when I was the Republican leader, I would come in with a set of priorities for our, our caucus um, and I'd be the representative for our caucus, and we would negotiate these things out. So you negotiate with the Democrats and the governor? or Both, how? both. Sometimes you do it alone with the Democrats, and sometimes you do it in the Big Five, and you, know, we, you get to a point where you say, well, there's an impasse, and so we've got to figure out how to resolve that, so we'll go back to our caucuses, and, and it, it was a big negotiation. It doesn't happen that way anymore. Uh, right now, you have uh, bureaucrats that are basically, um, they've been there for 20, 30 years. They write the budget, it comes out. 
Um, and, and the governor gives his blessing to it and it gets presented as a fait accompli, it gets voted, and there's very little discussion or negotiation on the merits of any particular provision. So who are these the bureaucrats that you're mentioning? Oh, they're, they're lifetime uh, people that have been in Sacramento for, you know, like I say, 20, 30 years. I mean, the staff kind of rotates around up there a lot from administration, you know, when, when uh, uh, Pete Wilson was there and Gray Davis got elected, you know, well then they all left and then when Arnold uh, got elected, a lot of the Pete Wilson people came back, and so they just rotate around, but they've been in Sacramento for a long, long time, and uh, they understand the process, and they, uh, they behind closed doors, they dictate what happens. So really, the elected officials are not that involved in making the decisions? Not at all, not anymore anyway. It used to be that they were involved. The only way to, for an elected official to impact the budget right now is to have some big media thing that exposes a big flaw or fraud or corruption or something like that. And there's a lot of media, of attention, media attention. And so the media will come and ask the governor's office, well, wh what, what about this? What about that? And then they'll make adjustments to it. But if you don't have some media strategy to bring exposure, bring the light of day to the budget process, you'll have no say in it. Who are these staffers? Is there is there a group of them, or is there lobbyists that are involved that are writing the bills? Because we have heard that lobbyists sometimes even write these bills, and and they have an impact on the budget too. Absolutely. So there, there's two groups. There's these these uh, staffers and, and and bureaucrats. And by the way, that's a criticism of term limits, especially a six-year term. They're now 12-year terms. They've lengthened a little bit. But when I was there, it was a six-year term. So the legislature would turn over really fast, and the only stability was lobbyists and, and the staff. And they would tell the politicians what to do, is that? Well, sure, because it's like if a politician got upset with a staff member, staff members say, well, you'll be gone in a year. I don't have to worry about it. And so they'll often turn around and even uh, sabotage your proposals, and they'll leak out things to the other side. And so it's a, it's a messy process. Um, when you have uh, short-term limits, it's better with the 12-year term limits because you have more stability. Uh, but with that said still, um, the staff and the, the lobbyists write most of the provisions in the budget. In fact, most of the bills get written by lobbyists and, and the staff. But they don't have any, a lot of interaction with the public, right? Well, there's no accountability whatsoever. No accountability. So if that's what you're asking, it's like, no, because most people don't know who the lobbyists are. They certainly don't know who the staff members are. And so these bills get written behind closed doors and they get presented um, as a fait accompli. So is it fair to say a few people are really running the show in the state? Is that? Oh, I, I think it's fair to say that there's about 10 people that are deciding what the budget is every year. It's that small and they're largely unaccounted for and uh, they don't, they're not known uh, by, the, of course, the governor is known. So those 10, how many of them do you think are not elected? Oh, probably, Roughly. probably uh, uh, six or eight are not elected. Wow. <laughs> I mean, the governor is ultimately the guy who, who presents the budget, but it's all crafted behind the scenes by the staff and, 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 and lobbyists do the input on that. But uh, no, in large part, the, uh, the legislators are not involved. Now, they'll, they'll, they can be involved on the edges, a little bit of a, you know, on the margins or something like that. If they have something that is important to them, they'll tell the governor's office, yeah, this is an important project for me. The governor may or may not put it into the budget. Um, the governor did do in the last year, he vetoed several bills because they were going to affect spending. So they saw this stimulus dropping off and they realized we better slow some of our spending down. And so many, 
many bills that were that had a fiscal impact got vetoed this year. And these unelected officials, usually they are staff or are they union leaders? Is there, we're, we're hearing about the unions having a lot of influence or is there? Well, I'll give you an example on uh, AB5. Um, you know, the, uh, the, the contractor law, right? The, the independent the law, the contractor law, banned independent contractors largely. Um, if you wanted an amendment to that law to exempt your group from it so you could still be an independent contractor, the, uh, the legislators who carried that bill uh, sent your request. In fact, told you if you want your, your industry exempted, you have to send it to the, the labor leaders and get their consent first before she'll even consider it. Wow. I mean, that's, that's how that law gets amended now. Without labor signing off on it, it doesn't even get considered. And essentially, they are part of the government. That, that's in well, sure, sure. At that point, they are. They're deciding what even gets debated. And what about that? Have you heard of stories where people cannot talk about what they want to bring up in the legislative body, like the moderate Democrats? Oh, well, they do. They get, they get chastised or ridiculed or whatever, and, and so they're very careful just not to bring it up. So there's just such an imbalance in the legislature now, um, and, and we need to fix that. And, and part of that's the electorate. The electorate has to decide. You know, do, do we want more balance in our state government or do we want a sort of 10 people making all the decisions for uh, all, at least the fiscal matters on the budget? You mentioned that right now there's not a lot of discussion in the, in the California state legislative body right. when it comes to the budget. Right. Was it like this when you were there? No, in fact, I, I, the, you know, the big five, you know, they would, they would have their conversations. And in fact, there was one occasion where the uh, Governor Davis called me and we had an impasse over some tax cuts. Um, we were trying to eliminate the car tax cut or the car tax altogether. And um, he didn't want to do that. He wanted to save some revenue somewhere else. And, and, uh, and I said, well, Governor, there's no votes in our caucus for that. And he says, I don't, I don't. I don't believe you. And I said, well, you name the people you want me to bring and I'll bring everyone down. So he named the people that are most likely to vote on a budget, more moderate members, uh, people who, who vote early on budgets. And, and I think I brought six or eight of my members down. We sat in the governor's conference room and we sat there and discussed why we couldn't vote a certain way. And he came to an understanding that well, this caucus isn't going to move on the car tax. They want to eliminate the car tax. And so when he saw the resolve of our caucus, he pivoted and he went somewhere else to solve the problem. And, and that's the type of conversation that you need to have because all of those people were representing thousands and hundreds of thousands of other people. And so there was true representation, true conversation uh, at, the, at the table. And that year we did eliminate the car tax. Uh, he brought it back in subsequent years, but, uh, uh, but that's, that's, that's how it should take place. Working together, negotiating, discussing. Among elected officials. Now it's not done among, it's behind no, it's, the doors among yeah, the key players. Key staffers, six or eight staffers, they, they basically decide what's going to be in the budget and they present it. It's usually, uh, it's usually passed with very little fanfare when there's a lot of revenue. Because when there's a lot of revenue, nobody really cares where the money comes from as long as it all got paid for, right? And, uh, but when there's a budget uh, shortfall like we're going to experience here real soon, well, then, then uh, it's going to matter to the people that get it's going to matter a lot more. Yes. And why should people care about this? You know, when we hear these numbers, like California had a $97 billion surplus, and now we are going to have a shortfall. Why should people care? 
Well, because it impacts their daily lives. I mean, California has dodged a bullet for a long, long time on finances because you know there's so much reliance upon personal income taxes. We talked about the fact that 64% of the budget is from personal income tax and and half of that is paid by 1% of the people. Well, when you when you uh, have a, a system that relies so much on on that group of people who are mobile and they leave and and you have a downward uh, pressure on your economy, you don't have capital gains increases and you have a, a revenue shortfall. Well, what happens then is you have to start coming in and making massive cuts. And people have come to rely on the government, rely on certain programs, and it just creates a lot of pain. And so, so I think the more people get involved, um, they, they would have an opinion that's like, well, this is a silly way to do it. Why don't we use some common sense? Why don't we engage and have a, a tax basis that's more broad-based so we don't have all these fluctuations? Because fluctuations, at the end of the day, cause pain and tragedy. And you, you want have to, to eliminate start programs those. and eliminate programs. And, and right. programs means... Homeless people not getting the help they need. Other other programs like from the education to well, that's one of the things that is being discussed right now. Uh, the the uh, uh, five hundred uh, million dollars to address the homeless problem in California. It, it, they may not be able to fund it because of these budget cuts. And so that's that's an issue of if you look at polling, homelessness is is one of the top three issues. And no matter what community you're in, people are concerned about homelessness. And if your if your budget has so many gyrations and you can't afford to address more. it, yeah, it, it, it the problem persists and gets worse. So why should people get involved? It's because the government is affecting their lives and uh, and this was supposed to always be, it was designed to be a citizen government. And when citizens don't engage, well then, then it's not a good outcome. You have ivory tower theorists deciding what's best for people. And you know who knows what's best for people? The people of California. So they should be involved and control their own destiny. You mentioned cuts. We are gonna have some cuts to, some of the costs that we have is kind of like ongoing. Like you mentioned education and yeah. certain parts. What do you think the cuts would look like? Do you think we're going to go to a severe cut, or do you think they can play the shenanigans and in a few cycles we'll be fine? Yeah, there, there. It depends uh, on the size of the deficit. A twenty-five billion dollar deficit on a three hundred billion dollar budget is not enormous. Um, you can you can trim and play some budget gimmicks and and sort of survive that. But if it gets to fifty or higher, well, then you have to have some real serious cuts and. And, and the thing about the way it works in, in California education, you know, they, they, it's a ratchet that, that goes up and it never comes down. And so if there's insufficient funding uh, to, to cover the percentage that's required for education, there's a balancing account created. And then when there's a budget surplus eventually, that all back. has to get made up first. And so you can have education, for example, pulling in 60, 80% of new budget revenue just to make up for past shortfalls. Now, do you think there's a chance that they could increase the taxes? Because people have complained about the taxes here already. There are already people leaving the state. Yeah, I, I mean, listen, there are always people that will think tax, uh, increased taxes is, uh, is the solution. We're at 13.3% at the highest rate now. Um, here, here's the issue with taxation. And, and the more you push that higher rate, the, the bigger your problem gets. Uh, two-thirds of our revenue comes from personal income taxes. So two-thirds of that $300 billion is $200 billion that comes from uh, personal income taxes that you pay. 
Um, there's about 200,000 people, 1%, that, that pay half of that. And, um, and so you can see when, when the economy goes down and there's less you know, uh, uh, stock options being exercised or you know, less capital gains coming in and, uh, and, and then, then just a few people move out of the state, it affects that budget quite a bit. And we, we, I mean, I know many people that have left the state. I know they live in Tennessee and Texas and Arizona and Utah. It's like we, we see them leave. And, and uh, I don't know at what point, I can't tell you how many have to leave before it creates a crisis, but uh, that's essentially what's going on here. And, and so when you see this economy coming down and, and you're gonna see less revenue, of course, less personal income taxes, which is, which is the, the bulk of the budget. And uh, that's why you have these big swings in California. And most of those really wealthy people are very mobile, right? They have multiple homes already. In well, that's place. exactly right. They, they have the option. And I, can, I could name a dozen right here that I know personally, uh, uh, wealthy people that left the state who have, they still have homes here, but they leave the state and they get taxed in Texas that has no income tax. Um, and as long as they are outside of the state of California more than six months, um, they don't get a, a, a California tax bill. On a separate note, Scott, you ran for Congress. Yeah. And you, you recently had a, it's a heated race. Can you tell us more about it? it was, there was a lot of money spent on this. Sure, sure. It was, uh, it was the most money in the history of Congress ever spent by a candidate. Um, Katie Porter was the incumbent. Uh, she spent $28 million in the cycle. I don't know that there's ever been more than 12 or 14 spent uh, in a cycle by a candidate. Uh, I got in the race uh, somewhat late. I, I raced about three million, which is really good uh, in 10 months. But uh, uh, at the end of the day, 28 million versus three million was uh, a little bit of a, a disadvantage for me. So for some of us, common people that are not in politics, it's hard to understand somebody spends $30 million for a job that pays 100, 100 something thousand dollars. Yeah, there, right? well, it's not their money. Um, they raise money outside. In fact, in Katie Porter's um, uh, case, she raises a lot of money through the, uh, the internet um, uh, from public employees all throughout the country, uh, small dollar donations. Uh, her mentor is Elizabeth Warren and helped her with a big fundraising base. And so she gets money monthly coming in uh, without even holding fundraisers. Um, and so she spends as much as she needs to, uh, to, to spend. I hear she's running for the Senate, though, so... Uh, and there uh, was a number. You mentioned there was like 200, it was $200 per, per each vote, per voter. Oh, yeah, yeah. That I think when you, when you, I think she got, I don't know, 100 and, uh, I don't know the number, 135,000 votes. You divide that into the $28 million and it's about $212 per vote or something like that. I was down to about $20 per vote. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah, Katie Sport, she spent, uh, I think, about two and a half million in the final week of the campaign. Uh, two and a half million is, was my entire budget for the entire general campaign. Um, and she went up on network TV. I think she did eight million in the last three weeks. Um, all negative um, advertisement. She brought up an indictment that occurred 27 years ago. Um, uh, said I was indicted for perjury and, and so it was true. So you, it, it's a hard to, uh, uh, call it defamation. Because you got indicted. I was. But then it was proved, was it? Well, I was indicted 27 years ago for perjury for documents I'd never seen or signed. 
uh, when it came out that the DA presented false testimony to the grand jury and my name was forged onto the documents, the judge said the DA committed grave misconduct and all the charges were dismissed. But that part of the story was never told and, and she's on network TV and it cost a million bucks a week to go there. I didn't have enough money to go up on network TV so it was hard to defend. I did a few mail pieces on it, uh, but at the end of the day it was a very nasty negative campaign. Do you think uh, less and less people want to get involved with politics as these campaigns have become so nasty in a sense? Like it's, it's very tough to- Yeah, I think it's, it's broader than the campaigns. I, I think there's a, there's a broader issue going on where, where people don't want to communicate anymore, um, whether it's just the hostility of a campaign or the fact that when you get there in, in Sacramento, it's just like if, if you're part of the minority party, your ideas aren't even welcome to be discussed. Uh, if you're a moderate Democrat, your ideas aren't even welcome to be discussed. And so a lot of people are like, why would I want to do that if I can't even make an impact when I get there? And so we, we have a culture now where it's a MSNBC versus Fox News and, and there's no longer a dialogue. There's no longer a, a good faith effort to come to a resolution to a problem to say, what do you think about this? Well, what do you think about this? And, and, and come to some type of compromise? No, it's just talking points, talking points, talking points, talking points, and they're talking past each other. They're really not trying to seek common ground. Which is pretty un-American. You know, as an immigrant, actually, one of the things I cherish about this country is the fact that you can talk. Yes. And even if you disagree, you can. Yeah. Is there a way out of this? I hope so. Um, I, I think when you see an imbalance, like you see in California, eventually people, um, we'll come back. It's no different than really in 1930s Germany in the sense that you had, you had a conservative party and you had the liberal party. The conservative party was offering you know, limited government and the, the uh, Democratic Party was offering bureaucracy and labor unions. And then uh, the progressives came along and they started offering free stuff. The problem is it came at the price of tyranny. And so we don't want that to happen here. Uh, we want to uh, let people know that uh, the individual runs through the heart of every human is a desire for freedom and to be free. And you don't want the government controlling every area of your life. And I think the Hispanics in particular are seeing that with the Democratic Party. They're, they're offering all these things, but then inflation comes around and high gas prices come around. At the end of the day, you end up with less. And so, um, you know, we're hoping that uh, people see that freedom is a better pathway. Now, what about the average Californians that are watching this show that are kind of not into politics? They don't care about Republicans. They don't care about Democrats. Yeah. And they just care about their day-to-day -day issues. And they also see this division and they yeah. see this toxicity. What can they, can they do anything to help with this cultural? Well, ultimately, it's, it's, it's your culture, but it's about voting and it's about getting involved. And, and if they see these budget deficits come around, if they get to be 50 to 100 billion dollars, you're going to see all these services get cut, services that people be, uh, learn to depend upon, then they get cut, then you have more and more pain. And eventually you realize people that are offering all this free stuff from government, you realize it's really not free at all. It comes at a heavy price, either on the economy or through taxation. And when you have so much debt and taxation, you have um, a downward pressure on growth and opportunity. And at the end of the day, we all, what do we want? We want opportunities. We want to all make our lives better. And, um, and we, c we can only do that. The government can't do that. And so eventually, 
Uh, the only way to turn it around is for people to get involved and to know what's going on with their government and to uh, go vote and even run for office if that's uh, what they're calling us. And do you have any other thoughts for our audience? Uh, well, I think that uh, both statewide and nationally, we, uh, we have divided governments. Um, you know, it's imbalanced in California, but nationally we have about 50-50 split on the governors. We have almost 50-50 in the Senate and almost 50-50 in the House. The point is that the margins are so close, for anybody to get involved, you can affect the outcome. And so I would encourage everybody to participate in government. Um, and uh, affect the outcome um, and, and learn to control your own destiny because if you don't, uh, others will. Scott Ba, it was great to have you on California Insider. Thank you, good to be with you. We want to ask you to sign up to our California Insider email list. You will receive exclusive updates on our upcoming documentary and get the latest inside stories on everything that's happening in California. Go to InsiderCA.com and sign up 